Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 32 will be the passage today that we will be unpacking together. Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you have learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another." Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is the very word of God. Indeed. Have you ever questioned the behavior of another Christian brother or sister? You know what I mean? You heard about a Christian who did this or that and thought to yourself, now that is something that a Christian is not supposed to do. Have you ever considered that some other Christian brother or sister may have said the same thing about you? On this Labor Day weekend, as has been our custom in the last several years, I want to take a, uh, this opportunity to introduce to us a theme for the next year of sermons, beginning next week all the way through next summer. And I want to speak to us this morning about the issue of Christian character and conduct. And I would like to offer up a theme on that subject that we will be touching on in our studies over the next year. Now, one of the reasons that I want to do this is because I find that many Christians are like me, confused about the proper place for proper Christian behavior. We struggle to define Christian ethics and morality in light of our insistence, rightly, on salvation by grace alone through faith alone. 
We get a little nervous sometimes when we begin to talk too much about Christian character and conduct, thinking that this will turn us ever so quickly into those dreaded legalists. And yes, that is a real danger, and we will need to take care to avoid it. But it is just as dangerous to avoid the subject altogether, not least because to do so, we'd have to avoid so much of the Bible. Take, for instance, the passage that is before us this morning. At the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes to his readers, telling them that they ought to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. And then he goes on to give some idea of what this worthy manner of living would entail. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Here, as elsewhere, we see that there is some way of living that is distinctively Christian. And we see that it is expected that everyone who calls themselves a Christian will take care to live in these distinctively Christian ways. To be a Christian is not just to believe the right truth, but also to behave the right way. Now, I'm not sure that all of you here this morning would agree with that statement. Let me say it again. To be a Christian is not just to believe the right truth, but also to behave the right way. So in order for me to demonstrate and prove that point, I want us to consider this morning from the text before us, first, the need for us to live differently. Second, the secret to living differently, and then last of all, the hope of living differently. The need, the secret, and the hope. First, the need to live differently. Now, let's establish the fact that there just has to be some Christian way to live. There's some way that is different than every other way of approaching life. When we look at our text this morning, verse 17 says that Christians must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In fact, did you notice here in verse 17 that Paul begins by saying, I testify in the Lord. In other words, Paul is claiming here to be speaking on behalf of Jesus He claims to be speaking with the very authority of the one that we call Lord. So if Jesus here, through the Apostle Paul, is telling us to do something or not to do something, then what would be expected for those who claim that Jesus is Lord other than to say, yes, sir, and to do what he says? Now, when Paul says here that we must not live like the Gentiles, he does not mean that Christians are supposed to now go live like Jews. The contrast that he's making here is not between the Jewish way of of life on one hand and the Gentile way of life on the other. 
Because Paul's audience here in Ephesians is primarily a Gentile audience. He's telling them that in order to be a Christian or having claimed to be a Christian or wanting to be a Christian, this Christian commitment, Christian desire, Christian claim, requires them to live differently in the midst of the culture that they are a part of. If I were to address this passage to us, to, to, to us today and say, you must no longer live like Americans live, then I wouldn't, of course, be telling you that you're supposed to go live like the British or the French. I'm telling you when I say that, that in spite of the fact that most of us here are Americans, there are certain things about the American way of life that is incompatible with the Christian way of living. Now, trying to figure out what elements of one's native culture are out of line with Christian conduct is a challenge. But it is a challenge that we must accept if we intend to be Christians. Clearly, Christianity is not simply a set of doctrines to believe. It is necessarily also a way of life to adopt. To be a Christian, you have to believe certain things. There's no doubt. But also to be a Christian, you have to commit yourself to living in certain ways. But we begin here with the ways that Christians ought not to live. Before we get into what we should do, Paul points out the things that we should not do or the ways that we should not live. And he gives five descriptions. Do you see them here? Five descriptions of the typical Gentile way of life that his Gentile audience in that day were to avoid. What would characterize the Gentile way of life that these Christians, these Gentiles coming to faith in Christ should now avoid? Well, here's what he says. Gentiles, he says, live in the futility of their minds. He says, second, that their understanding is darkened. Third, he says, they live their lives alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Fourth, they have become callous. And then lastly, he says, they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, this is probably not the way that the Gentiles themselves would describe how they live their lives. I doubt any pagan hearing these things would say, yeah, that's pretty accurate. Pretty much sums up the way I live. And let me tell you, it's awesome, right? The picture that Paul paints here would make us think of the worst, worst behaviors imaginable. But here's the thing. This text is not written to Christians in order to give them a self-righteous look down their noses at the pagans outside the church. Yeah. We don't live like those people. I doubt that the intent here is to warn us from engaging in behavior that even ordinary Gentiles would consider to be out of line. Actually, it seems to be written to warn us Christians 
from the ever-present danger of living our lives just like everyone else around us. And if we're not careful, we can find that even in our own day, this happens to us. Before long, if we're not careful, we who say that we are Christians can find ourselves living just like the non-Christians that we work with. Very little difference, if any, is found between us. What makes the difference, anyway, between how ordinary Christians live and ordinary non-Christians? What's this distinction? Is it just that we go to church and, you know, avoid other kinds of religious taboos? Is that what makes the difference? Is it just that we don't cuss too much or don't gamble too much or don't drink alcohol too much or don't vote for those Democrats? Is that what makes us distinct? Well, you see the problem here, don't you? There are plenty of others who do not call themselves Christians who also don't do those things or don't do them too much. And there are plenty of others who do those exact things and are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Something is really wrong when Christians find more commonality with non-Christians who vote like us than with Christians who do not. We've lost our distinction. Now, maybe the problem then is not so much with that person out there, right? Paul's not writing to say, yeah, go out and tell all those pagans, this is how you live your life while we holy people live differently. No, no, he's shining the light in our own hearts. And he's saying, you can't keep on living just any old way simply because you confess the Apostles' Creed. That will not do. Maybe the problem here is not so much with those sinners out there, but the sinners sitting in here. Maybe we Christians should be primarily concerned not with how the non-Christians live, but with how we are supposed to live in distinctively Christian ways. We are the ones who are supposed to be different. So the problem that we have here is not in expecting there to be some standard of Christian behavior, but in looking at the wrong standards. And the reasons that we Christians come to be known as those who have all the wrong standards that we judge morality on is because we have the wrong mindset. Did you notice that's what Paul says here? The description that he gives of the non-Christian a way of living, focuses on their mind. He says Gentiles live in the futility of their minds. He, he describes them as having an understanding that is darkened. He, he says there's an ignorance that is in them because of their hardness of heart. So when it comes to proper Christian conduct, you cannot start with the conduct. You can't start with the behavior. You have to start with the mind. And you have to change the heart. And that's, not, and that's true not just for the non-Christian. 
it's emphatically even more true for the one who professes faith in Jesus. Again, this text is not here so that you can go to your workplace and say, yeah, you bunch of ignorant people, alienated from the life of God. This text is here not as a way for us to psychoanalyze our non-Christian neighbors. It's written to us Christians to urge us to live like Christians. How do we do that? How do we do that, Paul? Well, in verses 20 to 24, we find the answer. We find the secret. Um, What is the secret to Christian living? Sounds like a book we might write, or maybe somebody has. And, well, here's the thing. It's really no secret. So don't write your book. This is so well-known, so obvious, so right there on the surface, and yet... It's the one we come back to time and time and time again. It's therefore the secret. It's the key to how we live distinctively Christian lives. Notice what Paul says in verse 20 and note it well. Here's what he says. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Now, here is the contrast from the standard non-believing way of being in the world. Here is what sets Christians in all times and places apart from everyone else when it comes, or should come at least, to our ethics and our morality and our way of living in the world. What is the contrast that he made? Here's the secret. It's Jesus. It's just Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. What is the secret to Christian living? It is Jesus. All right, now, (laughs) notice it is not something about Jesus. It is actually Jesus himself. (laughs) Verse 20 is not Paul's first century way of writing WWJD and putting it on your wrist. It is not telling us all you gotta do is just follow his example. You see, verse 20 is striking in its wording. Commentators will point out it's really unusual. It doesn't just sound strange in English, it sounds strange in Greek. It It sounds strange to any ear, why? Because to have a person as the direct object of the verb to learn is weird. You, I mean, you can learn a job. You can learn math and science and history. But how do you learn a person? How do you learn Jesus? This way of putting things, by the way, stands in parallel to the way that Jews were diligent to learn Torah. For Jews, the Torah was not just a document that you committed to memory. It was a document you lived. It was alive. It gave wisdom. It was virtually a person that you could talk to who would tell you how you should live your life. 
You study Torah not just so that you can, you know, be that annoying person who knows the answer to every Bible trivia question. You study Torah for the wisdom that it gives for everyday life. Now, Paul seems to be deliberately contrasting that or bringing that reality of Jewish life and saying, now, Christian, look, here it is even more obvious. We don't study Torah. Watch now. We don't even necessarily study the Bible. We study Christ. We study Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the Torah, who is the subject of the Bible. One commentator puts it this way. Since Christians believed that Christ was a living person whose presence was mediated by the proclamation and teaching about him, learning Christ involved not only learning about, but also being shaped by the risen Christ who was the source of a new way of life as well as of a new relationship with God. Now, most of us Christians, I, I think, if I know you well, we kind of get the fact that Jesus is some sort of new way to have a relationship with God. Yes and amen. Praise God. But we do not do so well, our tribe, our type, of knowing Jesus or seeing Jesus as a new way of life, a new way of being in the world. And yet, the point here couldn't be more explicit, and it needs to be said in our day time and time again. So we're going to do it for a year. How's that? <laughs> we're going to do it for a year. Let's try to, we're going to try to beat this in to our heads and into our hearts. To be a Christian is not simply to believe certain things about Jesus are true. you got to do that. But to be a Christian is also to commit ourselves to his new way of being, his new life in the world. Recall what Jesus said in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not just the truth we believe. He is. He's not just the life we seek. He is. He is also the way, that is, the way that we are meant to live, the way that we are supposed to be in God's world. But so many Christians do not give this enough attention. After 50 years in pastoral ministry, Eugene Peterson wrote this, Jesus as the way is the most frequently evaded metaphor among North American Christians. That's you. Speak for yourself. <laughs> but th this is an absolute problem, brothers and sisters. Because as Peterson puts it, I think so well, summarizing John 14, 6, only the Jesus way, wedded to the Jesus truth, brings about the Jesus life. Only the Jesus way wedded to the Jesus truth, brings about the Jesus life. Many Christians of our stripe have been eager for quite some time 
to look for distortions of Christian truth and call them out. I think I smell some heresy. Our love for doctrine is commendable, even necessary, but it will do us no good if we do not give just as much concern to preserving the ways of Jesus that are intended to bring light and life to a dead and dark world. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, Jesus warns in Matthew 7, 13. So let us take warning, lest many who call themselves Christians, even here among us, find themselves walking that broad and easy way. And by the way, it is easier than we might imagine to end up on the broad path, the easy way. Um, started playing golf again in the last few years. It's lovely, wonderful. Let me tell you what's easy to end up not on the fairway. That's easy. You can go to the right, you can go to the left. All kinds of ways to get out of bounds. And so it is in the Christian life. We need some vigilance to keep us on this narrow path. Now, some will tell us that the way to keep us on the narrow path is by spelling out the rules that we all have to follow, you know, to be good Christians. Here's what you have to do. Here's how you stay on the straight and narrow. Yeah, I, I, I'm familiar with that reality. Some of you are as well. This whole conversation makes you nervous, like, oh no, is that where we're going to? Jesus himself, and we're learning Jesus here, Jesus himself warns us of those who would tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's shoulders. Pay attention now and watch out for the legalists and you may actually find yourself, if you listen to their voice, curving right and off the narrow path. Yeah, the ones who want us to think that the, the way of staying on the straight and narrow is to spell out every rule will actually end up causing us to slice and end up, if you're right-handed, on the right side fall off the ledge either on the right or on the left. Because the same Jesus who said that the easy path is the one who leads to destruction also said his yoke is easy. His burden is light. So if all we end up with is, hey, here's the way to stay on the fairway, the straight and narrow, heavy burdens, difficult to carry, you find yourself now actually, ironically, not on the narrow path. Are you with me? So then others are going to come along and, and will tell us, see, that, that's the whole problem. That's the whole problem. So let's pay no attention to this whole subject. Let's just stick with Jesus' truth. And in response to the cold and personal rules of religion, they will urge us to not worry about it so much. Just get on with your life. 
But what that really means is just get on living by the world's terms. Go on living in just the way everyone else lives. And just keep that Jesus stuff relegated to Sunday mornings. And maybe your little devotional private quiet time. What? Haven't you heard about Christ? That's what Paul says in verse 21, by the way. I was just getting your attention. But that's what Paul says in verse 21. I mean, what do you think Christianity is? Or rather, who do you think Christianity is? There's nothing cold and impersonal here. Not if we're talking about genuine, authentic Christianity. We're talking about a risen Savior. And some of us need to get that in our minds. Jesus' ascension into heaven was not him, well, leaving his body behind. It was Jesus fully alive, taking the throne of heaven to rule over earth. That's who we serve. It's not cold and personal rules. We got a living, joyful Savior. Don't you know? That's who you are, Christian. That's who we're called to be. And that's why in verses 22 to 24, Paul tells us the basic script. Call it a secret if you want. But he gives us the basic script for how to live distinctively Christian lives. And it's like changing your clothes. Is that easy enough? Put off your old self, verse 22. Put on the new self, verse 24. Got it? Easy. Move on. Well, for some, it seems to be easy. Just stop. Just start. I admire those people who can say it as if it is as simple as it sounds. One time I tried to stop drinking coffee one day a week. What's so hard about that? I'll tell you what is hard about that. Desire. Craving. And headaches. I finally realized that if I didn't want to hate living one day a week, I had two choices. I could stop drinking coffee for much more than one day a week, or I'd have to abandon the project altogether. I chose the latter. See, there is nothing easy about the reshaping project described in verses 22 to 24. There simply is no way around the reality that this is going to take a lot of effort. But like learning a new language or kicking a nasty habit, we're not talking here about something that is impossible, something that cannot be done. We're not talking about the need for a leopard to change his spots or for you to not be the person God made you to be. The goal here of Christian transformation and the way of living in the world is not to be robotic imitations of someone. Even Jesus, as a full human, had some kind of personality, and yours may not be his. He may have had a different Enneagram number than you. Just tease it out a little bit. Far too much of Christian ethics is focused on uniform behavior. 
all while avoiding the key element of transformation. Notice it here in verse 23, and you shouldn't be surprised about it. We must be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Remember that? Remember that's the problem with the Gentile world? It's your problem too. It's my problem. We got to learn to think in a different way. We must learn Christ. That is to say, at the heart of this transformation is a way of thinking about what it is that Christ has actually achieved. If all you have in your mind is what Christ achieved was my own personal salvation so that when I die, I get to go be in heaven forever, then no wonder you struggle with what Paul's talking about here. No, you got to learn to think differently because this is the whole grounding that Paul labored for the first three chapters in Ephesians to demonstrate. You see, in Paul's metaphor here, he is telling us not to simply change our habits. You better not start there. You better not just say, well, here's this thing that I do that I know is probably not Christian. I'm just going to stop doing it. If you start there, you're doomed. He's telling us not to change our habits. Listen, he's telling us to change our humanity. Put away the old self. You probably have a little note there. The Greek word there is anthropos. Put away your old humanity. Your old way of being a human being, he says. You know, the one that is plagued by sin and destruction. And then in verse 24, he tells us, put on your new humanity. And he says here, and this should blow your mind. The one created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, if we're listening carefully here, we should see that what we are talking about is something that is entirely impossible apart from Jesus. And yet, something that is entirely expected because of Jesus. Entirely impossible if you go at this without Jesus. And yet, if you go at this with Jesus, in Jesus, expect it. It's going to happen. Without Jesus, we are without hope. With Jesus, we have real hope. A hope that makes a massive difference. A hope that transforms the world. You see, Christian conduct is never a matter, and this is where we get it wrong, it's never a matter of just turning over a new leaf getting a fresh start, New Year's resolution, try again this week, ah, over and over and over again with no assurances whatsoever that having begun on a right path, we don't just mess it up like we did the first time. That is not what Christian conduct is all about. This, we're not talking here about a do-over. And the deathly challenge to just try again or just try harder. No way. Uh-uh. Christian conduct is a matter of a new self. 
a new humanity, which he says is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, this is a new creation. It's a new kind of humanity. It's a new kind of life and existence that is patterned after God's own existence, God's own life. You can't just try harder and get that. But at the same time, early Christianity took root and spread rapidly because of radically different ways of living. Historians will tell us, why did Christianity take off? Why did it spread rapidly? Why did it become the force that it is even in our world to this day? And there, there's no way to deny this. It was because of radically transformed people. Here were a people who faced martyrdom out of loyalty to an executed criminal. Here were a people who demonstrated a love that knew no racial boundaries. Here were a people who sternly forbade sexual immorality as well as the exposure of children and a great many other things which the pagan world took for granted. And at the same time, the characteristics of these Christians indicated that they were some kind of a new group, some kind of a new grouping of people that had, up to this point, never been seen in the world before. What were they? How should we describe them? One historian writes this. In many ways, they were not like a religion because they had no sacred sites and no animal sacrifices. Religious? Nah, they must not be. They were not like a political group since they looked for a kingdom not of this world. What kind of a political group can you be if you, like, don't pick up swords and fight? That must not be that. They were... They were kind of like Jews rather than pagans in that they gave allegiance to the one creator God and they reused standard Jewish polemic against paganism and yet they insisted upon using the language of divinity for Jesus, for a man. And upon a completely non-racial fellowship both of which put them decidedly outside the range of mainstream Judaism. So what was it? What sort of a movement was this? I'm still quoting, by the way. This is, this is so exciting that I'm, just, I'm, I'm adding in to the manuscript. I kind of do that at times. Um, here's what he said. What was it? What kind of movement was this? And listen to this. From our brief study of early Christian behavior, we can only say that it was a new sort of movement that could only properly be described by creating a new category alongside Greeks, 
barbarians and Jews. It was a new way of construing what it meant to be human. This is what God is up to in Jesus and what it is that we are invited to participate in. Now, to me, that sounds exciting. And I'm eager to learn Christ with you in the coming year. So our theme for the next year will be learning Christ and living accordingly. Learning Christ and living accordingly. And and just think, just think what our Lord might want to do through us as we learn to live his way rather than our own. Just think of what God might want to do in our time and space in 2023, 2024, Oklahoma City, right here, if indeed he has made us members of a new people, a new humanity. There are problems in our community that he has called us to bring light to. You see them when you drive to work. You hear them when you read your newspaper. You read the local newspaper, right? So you know what's happening here. You hear about them in the political debates. The reality of the kingdom of God means the reality of manifestations of that kingdom in precisely some of the most broken and dark places. That's what you could expect. Learn Christ and live accordingly, and light can start to shine in places where it never shone before. You, you missed it earlier, right? Say it again. The pagan world took for granted that if there was a child that was unwanted, you just threw him out on the streets. It's unheard of in our day. You know why? A new humanity. It wasn't secularism that brought that about. It was Christianity. And we live in that world and t- we take it for granted. What more needs to be done like that? In our day. That's what we're calling us to. I'm getting excited. I feel opportunity, expectation for what God might do in this church. We learn Christ and live accordingly. Now, I don't know the specifics. Got a few ideas. But perhaps verses 25 to 32 will give us a taste of where it all might begin. Look at them. After all, what if we Christians were known as the people who put away falsehood and always speak the truth, even when it costs us political power and influence, or even if it exposes our own sins? What if the church stopped hiding, covering up for themselves, to make themselves look good and just admitted where they're broken. We mentioned this a while back. We've got a, a, an accountability committee that's being formed here in order to necessitate or help 
and prevent any kind of spiritual abuse that happens in our own church. That we elders aren't immune from those temptations. So we're working to make sure that we live as people of truth. Notice what he says. We speak the truth because we are members one of another. It's a new humanity. You see, in Christ, God has made us human beings in solidarity with one another. So if we start telling lies to each other, we're only harming ourselves. You see that if you learn Christ. What if we Christians were known as the people, look at the next one, who are long-suffering, self-controlled, not allowing anger to cause us to sin, verses 26 to 27. Because we know that, in the words of one commentator, where anger is allowed to simmer, the devil is allowed to trespass. And what if we saw our vocations, the paychecks that we earn, as an opportunity not only to make an honest living for ourselves, but just as much as the opportunity, this is what the early Christians did, to share with anyone in need. After all, we're the kind of people who know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Learn Christ and live accordingly. What if we did not believe the lie that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, and gave thought instead to using timely words that would build up rather than being so quick to complain and criticize? I don't have a bone to pick here, but that's easy to do in a church. Critique, criticize. Why don't you have a conversation? Why don't you seek to encourage and build up one another? After all, we know the one who, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, knows how to sustain with a word the one who is weary. Learn Christ and live accordingly. And what if we Christians were known for our refusal to entertain bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and malice, swapping them out instead for kindness, tenderheartedness, even to our enemies. After all, we who have experienced the forgiveness of God in Christ, aren't we commanded to extend that forgiveness to others? If you do not forgive others their trespasses, I'm quoting Jesus here, and neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Learn Christ and live accordingly. So to help us on our quest over the next year, here's what's coming. We're going to give ourselves to the study of first, starting next week, the Sermon on the Mount, September through November. Month of December, Lord willing, we're going to study the prophet Micah. February through April, we're going to give ourselves to the study of the New Testament book of James. And then... Just a taste in May and June, we're going to open up the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ light our path as we seek to live distinctively Christian and fully human lives before the watching world. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we ask you by your grace to give us a joyful expectation of what you may want to do 
in our lives and through our lives as we take on the new humanity that is ours in Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus, teach us your way that we might bring light and life and ease heavy burdens in a world broken by sin. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. But you can't do